All right, good morning. If you could return to your pews. And as you do, pull out your Bibles. We're going to ask you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's the passage we're going to be in today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you are using one of the Bibles that is uh, right in front of you, it's page 967, page 967. For the rest of us, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We are in a series called Generous Hearts, Open Hands. And what we're really learning is how to be generous Christians. And of all people, the Christian ought to be most generous. And this sermon's going to give the answer to that statement, why we should be most generous. Well, let me uh, encourage you then to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I don't know anywhere in the scripture that is more clear on how to be a generous Christian, how to give generously than 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. But I want to give you just a quick background, and you'll see why in a minute, of the city of Corinth. You'll see why in a minute. Corinth sat, uh, it was a city that sat on a four-mile wide strip of land called an isthmus. And here's what would happen. Ships would come to one side of that four miles. They would offload their cargo. Slaves would transport that cargo across the four miles using wagons. And then they would load waiting ships on the other side that were there in the sea. Otherwise, ship captains had to sail all the way around the Peloponnese. It was incredibly dangerous shipwreck after shipwreck, and it took a long time to make that voyage. So Corinth began to be a commercial smash hit. They were the city, the capital city of Achaia. The population peaked to 250,000, quarter of a million people. There were the Olympics, the most popular sporting event. But then second to the Olympics were called the Isthmus Games. They were biennial, meaning every other year. They had in that city an 18,000-seat theater. Unbelievable. It's bigger than a lot of our colleges around here. They had a 3,000-seat concert hall. They had temples to all kinds of Roman and Greek gods and goddesses. The most famous temple in the city of Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite. And every afternoon, just about when the evening would come, a thousand priests and priestesses would walk out of that temple, which was on a hill overlooking the city, make their way down the road, and they were prostitutes. And they had no end of supply for their profession. All of the sailors that were there coveted their wares. They made all this money, brought all that money back into the temple of Aphrodite, this was a commercially prosperous city. It was a diverse city, and it was one of the most divisive cities in the first century world. In comes Paul, the apostle, with his missionary team, and they meet a Christian couple called Aquila and Priscilla, and together the five of them launched a church, which we call the Church, church of Corinth. 
But the church rapidly assimilated its culture. Listen, we're supposed to be affecting the culture all around us. The city will be blessed by the righteous in it, Proverbs says. But this city began to look, or this church began to look just like the city itself. This was a prosperous church. It was a diverse church. And it was a divisive church. So Paul, a few years later, paid a visit and soon after wrote the very painful, confrontational letter of 1 Corinthians. And it spurred most of the other Christians back to Christ in repentance. And in that letter, in chapter 16, he made them aware of just how bad the suffering was for the mother church of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so Corinth began to take an offering. They began to plan this offering, but they never completed the gift. A year later, Paul writes to them again. It's the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're about to study his urging in chapters 8 and 9 to complete the gift, take the offering, and get that money to Jerusalem where the Christians are in desperate need. That background being laid, let's... Stand up, if we could, and let's read seven verses, or eight verses, uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 1. And here's what Paul wrote. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I could testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. You may be seated. We stand to give honor to the authority of the Word of God, the importance, the treasure, the privilege of having the Word of God in our lives. That's why we stand. And now we get to unpack it. Now we begin to really understand it and then apply it to each of our lives. So I'm going to help you do that with three simple points. Nothing's complicated in this message. Number one, the motivation of the generous Christian. We're going to see what motivates Christians to be generous. Look at verses one and two. You're going to find it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, everybody look at me for just a second. This is the word of God. It's been preserved for us. It's infallible. It will not drop to the soil of the earth without the power to do what God wants. So even right now, can I encourage you to do what I need to do, what I have to do when I'm studying, but when I'm sitting under preaching, all right, Lord, can you show me what I need to see in this personally in my own life? Open my eyes and show me. The power of the word of God is to do exactly 
that. Well, we need to understand then, who are the churches of Macedonia? Well, you know them if you know the New Testament. They go by Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. There's three churches. There might have been more, but those are the three that we know. They were located in modern northern Greece. Remember Alexander the Great conquered a lot of the world in his day. He was defeated by the Romans. In this area, northern Greece, Macedonia, resisted the Roman Empire mightily. Therefore, when Rome was victorious, they ravaged these peoples. They desolated them. They decimated them. Add on to that and go back to the, the book of Acts and you'll find it. When they started churches here, immediately they received intense persecution. The people of this area hated Jesus and they hated the followers of Jesus. They're already trying to recover. They're already decimated. But even add to that the persecution and you'll understand why Paul says in verse 2, they were undergoing a severe test of affliction. What's that word affliction mean? Well, the Greek language actually has two different levels to it. There's classical Greek that the philosophers spoke. That's the, that's the educated Greek. And the other one was Koinea Greek. That's street Greek. That's the Greek for the everyday person. Do you realize that the entire New Testament was translated into Koine Greek, street Greek, so that everybody would understand it? You didn't have to be educated to understand it. Well, here's what this word affliction in our English means when you go back to the Greek. It, mean, it was a word that they used to describe crushing grapes to get their juice. That millstone is going around. It's either 75 pounds and sometimes even heavier. It comes over those grapes. It absolutely crushes them to a pulp. That's where you got that saying. And coming out of the, that pulp was the juice. The word affliction is the crushing of grapes. The Christians in these churches were being crushed. It crushed them. It was severely testing their faith, the persecution was. But particularly, they were, they were being choked by poverty. In fact, Paul describes their poverty with the word extreme. Have you ever heard of a bathysphere? A bathysphere is actually the Greek word here for extreme. That's a deep sea submersible. It's usually round. That's how it withstands the incredible, nearly incalculable pressure at the depths of the ocean. A bathysphere goes down miles deep in the ocean. This is the word that Paul uses. He selects it purposefully and intentionally. It describes the extremely deep, the rock bottom poverty that they were under. They were as poor as you could get. Yet God was pouring out his grace into these Macedonian Christians. And while they had almost no possessions, almost no monies, look at verse 2, they had an abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. you got to go all the way back to Acts 2 to be able to answer the question, well, if they had very little, how did they give so generously? Here's how they did it, and here's how Acts 2 they did it. They sold what little they had, and they gave the money to the poor saints in Jerusalem. 
Have you ever sold anything and gave the entire amount to the poor? That's what these saints were doing. I've been to Haiti. I've been to Mexico twice. I've been to Africa. All of these are mission trips. I could tell you what I learned by experience. The most joyful people I have ever met in my life are the poorest people I have ever met in my life. I'm not exaggerating that. You can have money and you can be happy, but if money has you, if it possesses you, it's gonna leave you joyless. That's a guarantee. The means of these Christians in Macedonia, the means of their joy, the motivation of their generosity, Paul tells us what it was. It was the grace of God. The grace of God says that God has bestowed on you his favor depending on nothing that you've done to earn it. You did not clean up your act and God said, finally, now I'm going to set my love on you. You were as filthy morally as you could be. And God said, I'm going to set my love on you now. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to put my favor on you. And you don't look very good, but I'm going to help you look better. Do you know how that grace is possible? It came at a very high cost. Just before three o'clock, on the day that Jesus was crucified, he was put on the cross at 9 a.m. Almost six hours later, he cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, in English, why have you forsaken me? The father turned his face away. Do you know why? Because Jesus became the sin bearer. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You see, the missile of God's wrath, which would have been and should have been aimed at us, were the rebels, were the sinners, were the defiers. It diverted because of Jesus and his willingness to die for us. That missile struck. God's wrath has to strike. His holiness requires it. It struck his son on that cross and not you and me, Christian. Therefore, you have all of the love of God, not a part. The infinite love of God is yours. His favor is yours. His kindness is yours. His promises belong to you. Just as strongly as they belong to Jesus, his son. That's the grace of God. It was flooding the hearts of the Macedonian Christians. But there's more to this good news, and I need you to hear this. The moment you called out to God in faith, asking him to save you. In that moment, he pulled out of you what was dead. Your old nature. Your old heart. 
And he put in its place faster than a thought can go through your mind, a brand new nature. He recreated you. He made you a new person. And the spirit of God came inside you to live. You're now his temple. And he begins to exert the spirit of God does all of his power. The same power that created this earth is in you. And he is changing you. He's giving you no new motivations. He's giving you new desires. He's giving you the want to, to live like you ought to. This is what the Spirit of God is doing even right now. That's the grace of God that is yours. And now that you are alive, you were not alive. Not alive to life before salvation. But now that you're saved, you are alive. And every dollar you have to your name, every piece of clothing in your closet, every raise and promotion that you will ever get at work, they're all expressions of God's grace to you. He's flooding it into your life. If your eyes will only be open, you will see it. You will see it not because you earned it, not because you deserved it. It's simply because our God loves to bless and he loves to bless his children. Now listen, and through his children, he longs to bless others. When you understand that and you go into that job interview and you get the job, it's impossible. If the grace of God is flooding your life, it's impossible for you to say to yourself or anybody else, I nailed that interview. I nailed it. No. God just gave you his blessing. He just gave you more grace. He just gave you his favor. He's the one that gave you that job. It wasn't because you impressed the boss. It was because God graciously gave you his blessings. Do you believe that? Until you believe this, your fingers are going to want to close possessively over your monies and your possessions. The only power that can unlock those fingers is the power of the grace of God. And because of that immeasurable grace, you're going to discover it's not really very difficult to give, verse 3, according to your means and even beyond your means of your own accord. You're going to be able to give beyond your means. Have you ever given beyond your means? You know what that means? There's somebody that's in need. You really don't have that much money. You've got bills coming. You owe that money, but yet the Lord's putting it on your heart. That person's in need, so you give beyond your need. Your means, rather, and trusting in the Lord to provide you, and he will. You're going to be convinced utterly with Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And you're going to believe what the Apostle Paul said to one of those poor Macedonian churches, the church of Philippi. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Your fingers will open. You will see money and possessions as belonging to God and you will give generously. And that leads us to the second point. Not only did we just see the motivation for the generous Christian, the grace of God. Now we're going to see the devotion of the generous Christian that makes it all possible. So grace motivates our generosity. 
But no one will be more motivated to be generous than the one who surrenders everything they have to God. Look at verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Remember I told you how rich the Greek language is? Well, that word first comes from a Greek word. The word first in our language can mean two things. One, it can mean um, timing. Like my oldest brother, Steve's the firstborn child in the Ackley family. My son, Matthew, firstborn child. That's not this word first. This word first is the word for most important or priority and gives us the phrase, keep first things first. Keep it top of mind. Keep it where it belongs. More, most importantly, they gave themselves to the Lord. There's nothing more important than this. It's the highest expression of worship possible. It's saying to God from your heart, we are yours, Lord, and all we have is yours, and you have the rights to us and our monies. To see by faith, verse 9, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, is to be set free from an ownership mentality and to open your hands and cheerfully give as a steward of what God owns. Now let me get you behind the scenes for a minute. I hope your heart breaks over what I'm about to tell you. 50%, friends, 50%, I do not make these statistics up, 50% of the global extremely poor people on earth, that's global, all over the, the earth, 50% of them are children. They're kids. 90% of that 50% live in the sub-Saharan Africa, where Restoring Hope Ministry is, that we started, and South Asia. And these numbers, with all the humanitarian outfits, all the organizations, that number has not declined. In the last decade, it's risen 16%. Largely, I hope you hear this, is because Christians close their hands, including me. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where we are with Restoring Hope, 30% of their children, 30% of their children in the city of Dungu, 350,000 people live there, 30% of them die before two years old. 50% of them, listen, think of your own children. You got three kids, think of one of them dying before two years old. You got six kids, three of them are going to pass away before they're five almost entirely because of poverty. When I was over there, we were driving through the streets of Dungu. They're just dirt roads, no street lights. And dirt yard after dirt yard, I'm watching kids sitting there eating a gourd. Absolutely has no nutritional value. You cannot survive on it. But the parents give it to them, especially in late afternoon and evening, so that their bellies are full and trick their brains so they could go to sleep. When I was in Haiti, in Capitan, Haiti, 
I had child after child, one that I have pictures of sitting on my lap, looking at me with the whitest teeth, looking up with the biggest smile. His stomach looked like two bowling balls were in it. He's got either quashiorcor disease or marasmus. He's going to probably die. That is extreme malnutrition. This is all over the world. And it's preventable. Particularly if the church will just become generous. Well, you know what? Sometimes hearing stories in the other side of the globe doesn't really impact us. Let's bring it home to America. In our own country, the United States, there are 37.9 million people classified as poor and in poverty. So can I ask you again, just to deeply reflect, when's the last time that you sold something and gave it to the poor and the needy? The churches in Macedonia were poverty-stricken, crushed under poverty, yet abundantly joyful. And look what it did. They pleaded with Paul. They begged Paul, please take this gift and get it to Jerusalem saints. They're never going to meet the saints in Jerusalem. They're so far away. They will never meet them. They will never know them. These are Gentile believers giving to Jewish believers, and they're begging Paul. I guess what's happening, I mean, you could just read between the lines. Paul's going, you're too poor to give. You just keep your money. You've got to feed your families. And they're saying, no, we can give according to our means, and we're even going to give beyond our means. We're going to trust our God. Take this money. They did not give from a surplus. It was not a wrestling match for God to uncurl their fingers. They gave and they gave generously beyond their means. Verse 3. You know how we give, most of us. We give off of our excess. And it might be a slight imposition, but it really doesn't infringe on our ability to maintain the level of lifestyle we want for ourselves. I mean, who gives? You don't need to raise your hand. Well, let me just ask it more personally. Do you, do I, do we give in a way that actually lowers our lifestyle, that we can't do the things that maybe we would like to do because we're giving too much away? Well, that's Macedonia. And we got this mindset, Old Testament actually, that 10% is God's, he owns it, but we got 90% and we can live off of that 90% and do what we want, but that's not even the gospel. The gospel is 100% of everything we have has God's name on it and he has complete authority to do what he wants to do with all of it. It all belongs to God. Isn't this what scripture tells us? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all with all that is in it. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, about a decade ago, I got a phone call from somebody in our church and they the person said, hey, you know, I've got, I've got a few motorcycles in my garage and I, I hardly get to ride them. They need to be ridden. You want to borrow one and just ride it? And I said, that would be awesome. I'd never ridden a Harley Road King, so he let me take his Harley Road King. I had it for months. 
Imagine if that same friend calls me. It says, Tim, I need the bike back. I'm going on a trip. And I said to him, you know, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I needed the money. So I parted it out and sold it. He would be understandably upset. I had no right to do that. It wasn't my bike. He was letting me borrow it. I was stewarding it. It belonged to him. Now, if you take that same illustration and apply it to every dollar you have, every possession in your home, and you understand and you fundamentally believe by faith, they all belong to God. Well, how would that change the way that you manage your money and possessions? 1989, Dean of Men, his name was Dane Emmerich at Liberty University, agreed to do Denise and my pre-marriage counseling. It was fantastic. One of the things he said to us, I'm going to encourage you two to do right now, come back in a week and make that decision, but do what we've done in our marriage. Pick an amount of money that neither of you will spend beyond without coming back and discussing it and agreeing on it. We went out of that session, we talked about it, we said, that seems like very good advice. So we came back, 1989, and told Dane Emmerich, we did it, and the amount is $20. It doesn't count for groceries and gas, but anything discretionary, we have to agree with, we have to talk about. 34 years later in marriage, a few years ago, we raised the limit to 25 we have purposely kept it low to force ourselves to discuss and to find agreement. What if you took that advice to God? Christian, what if you began to take all of your purchase desires to God and began to pray like this? God, this is your money. You've lent it to me for my family's needs and for me to give generously to your kingdom and the poor and the needy. Are you okay if I use some of that money to buy what I've been looking at? Are you okay if I use some of your money to go on a vacation for our family? Let me tell you what's going to happen. God will answer you. He will make it clear. He will either give peace or he will withdraw peace. He will guide you in how he wants you to spend and manage his money and his possessions. And when you seek agreement with him for a purchase, he's going to provide in his time and in his way, sometimes better than you ever thought he could. It is this worship, that devotion that forms in you and in me, such a trusting heart to God that we can willingly and joyfully affirm his ownership of everything in our possession and we can give with open hands to his purposes. There's one final point, and I'll be brief. Not only the motivation that's in the heart of the generous giver, and not only the devotion of worship that we long for to give ourselves first to him, Third, the dedication of the generous Christian. The poor Macedonian churches, mired in the crushing depths of poverty, devoted themselves to Jesus, but then look at verse 5, they dedicated themselves to others. They gave themselves first to the Lord, 
And then by the will of God to us, meaning they took an offering from the meager that they had and they entrusted it to Paul, Titus, and Timothy to take it to the Jerusalem Christians. God had been rich to them. He had flooded them with his grace. They knew he owned everything they had. And they lived trusting God that he would give everything they needed. And it freed them to give generously despite their poverty. When's the last time you walked into your closet and looked at the clothes on the clothes, ha clothes hanger, looked at your shoes, went into your garage, looked at your tools, looked at your cars, and said, God, every one of them are evidences of your kindness to me. And they all belong to you. All of it. Paul takes the example from the Macedonian Christians and then speaks to the Corinthian believers in verse 7. He says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The phrase act of grace is the phrase generosity. See that you excel in your gen generosity as well. And friends, listen, the, the timeless word of God is now directed to us and it's giving you and it's giving me the same admonition. And it all begins with the mindset of verse 1. These are our brothers. These are our sisters in the Lord. Do you realize that every single legitimately poor person in this church ought to be helped out of their poverty by us? Don't you remember I keep telling you? To delineate between circumstantial poor, those who lost their job, those who the company downsized and they no longer have a job, those whose health went terrible and they can't even work physically for a while. That's circumstantial poverty. But the irresponsible poverty of the people that could work but don't want to work. That's not really who I'm talking about. Every circumstantial poor person in this church ought to be helped out of their poverty by the Christians here. You know, the kingdom of God, there will not be one poor person. The mindset that all of us are to have by the power of the gospel is that we are stewards of God's resources. They're not ours. And when the possessor of heaven and earth, John Wesley said, brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as a proprietor, not as an owner. He placed you here as a steward. He trusts us. God entrusts to us riches, monies, possessions, so that we can give them, not only meet our own needs, but give them to the kingdom of God. That's how he finances these ministries and to give them to the poor and the needy around us. But when you close your grip, you lose the trust of God. And you will find that the joy in your heart leeches away. So what do we do as I close? Well, I'm going to give you two action items, and this will be very brief. Can I ask you to think right now? Just be utterly honest. I don't know your answer. I only know mine. Is your hand open with your money and possessions or closed 
Is it open? God owns it all. I'm not a proprietor. I'm a steward. Or is it closed? I worked hard for this. There's things I want to get. There's dreams that I have, and I'm going to use this money for it. And your grip closes. You're a hoarder. You're anxious over your financial future. That's a closed grip. You have an idol of a love of money. That's a closed grip. If you have a closed grip, my friend, the only right response is repent. You're sinning. And God is holding back from you joy. But if you have an open hand and you want to know, well, where can I give? Where can I begin giving even beyond my means, not just for my excess, but sacrificially. Let me give you some ideas. You do your own research. I'm just giving you a sampling. How about be thinking about Bright Hope Pregnancy Support Center? You know they're trying to hire an OBGYN this year to give legitimacy to their ministry to withstand the pressure in Pennsylvania to shut down pro-life resources. They're, they're working on hiring an OB, OBGYN. They don't know how they're going to pay for it. How about Restoring Hope Ministry, the ministry we began putting in over a million dollars into this ministry of your giving. We own 2,000 acres on a 300-year lease in the middle of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it's an incredible ministry working to children, helping them to get back on their feet, rescuing them out of the, of the decimated lifestyle of shame. How about the Tim Tebow Foundation? I really like that foundation. I think he's doing a really great work. All of these that I'm giving you have incredible financial accountability around them. Our own, dis, our own denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, has a ministry called Reach Global. It goes around the world in almost all countries. They're ministering to the, the poorest of the poor. The people have been decimated by natural disasters. It's an incredibly legitimate place to give your money. Compassion.com. I don't personally know of any ministry doing more for the children that are suffering than Compassion.com. You've got Bloom that you heard Pastor Kyle talk about. You've got Riverside, our own ministry. You've got our own children's ministry. We're always asking you, can you buy a Bible for them? Can you give a Christmas gift for them? There's so many other ministries in the kingdom of God. And then there's the poor and the needy around you that you run into. I, on the way, I don't think I told you this. On the way up to New York one time, my family and I stopped at the Flying J. North Pennsylvania, Route 81. I'm filling up with gas. Guy comes over to me and says, dude, I, I'm sorry to bother you, but we're out of gas. We're trying to get up to our family in north part of New York. He said, can you give me some money for gas? I don't ever give cash to people that ask, but I'll go give them a meal. I'll fill up their tank. I said, I, I won't give you money, but I will definitely, let me finish here. I'll come over and fill up your car with gas. I'm pumping my gas. I'm finishing it up. Next thing I know, he's driving off. He didn't want gas. He wanted money. I don't know what he wanted to do with it, but it was a legitimate. You've got to discern, right? You've got to have boundaries. But your fingers stay open, and they don't close. And when you give generously, last thing I'm going to tell you, motivated by grace, devoted to God, committed to brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, you're going to be flooded with an abundance of joy, more than you ever thought you could. Amen? Father, thank you 
for what you're doing with us. Lord, would you unlock our hands? Lord, let the gospel of grace flood our hearts. Let us see money and possessions differently as truly belonging to you. And Father, I pray that we would constantly be coming. Father, coming to you and asking, Father, do you want me to buy this? Father, do you want me to sell this? Father, do you want me to give this away? Let us be willing to do what you tell us. In Jesus' name, amen.